As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello guys, thank you for tuning in. This is the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, joined by my co-hosts, as ever, Tom Warville and Michael Cox. And guys, uh, busy as ever on The Athletic site. Michael, what have you been focusing on since we last spoke? Uh, My article today was about expected goals and comparing the actual table with the expected goals table, which I know is the kind of thing Tom is usually across. Do your toes feel a little trodden on there? Tom? <laughs> um, I can't feel the toes in my life. No, that's a joke. Um, no, definitely not. It's uh, It's been a bit of a role reversal, I guess. I did a piece that came out this morning about Thomas Gronemark, who is the throwing coach at Liverpool, and tried to go a little bit deeper and understand what exactly he um, is training and what kind of the, the improvements or the benefits of um, his presence at Liverpool have been. So I've kind of done the, the tactics and Coxie's done the stats um, so far this week. Wow. I had a very... Uh lengthy debate with Thomas Cronenmark on Twitter about a month ago because I wrote an article basically saying that throw-in should be changed and you should I mean this would help Hector Bellerin we might mention this later but <laughs> saying that throw-ins basically you should be able to take a throw-in however you want and Thomas Cronenmark very much disagreed perhaps fearing that his uh, his number of clients might dry up. I mean I think your point about you know, th- th- there was chat about Hector Bellerin's foul throws. Let's just cover that off now. Uh, online over the weekend, of course, I think it's five this season, which understandably gets people's backs up because he is a professional footballer who has been a professional footballer for the majority of his life. But Coxie, I, I don't know if it was you or someone uh, replying to you, basically asking the question, what, why should the throw-in rules be like this? Like the little one where you throw it but you haven't pulled your arms back fully. So you just sort of flick it uh, from the top of your head. That is technically a foul throw. Can you tell me why that's a foul throw? No, I don't really understand it. I understand why there are some regulations to prevent everyone hurling it one-handed like 50 Hmm. yards down the line. But no, I mean, what Bellerin does, he's just trying to get the ball back into play, isn't he? And get it on the deck and get the game moving again. And I, I just can't really see why there's a regulation for that. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to do a netball chess pass you should be able to do it so yeah i can't really see the point in that just get on with the game i say thomas gronemark should 
or maybe does work with Cheltenham Town, or at the very least will be aware of Cheltenham Town. They've got a centre-back called Ben Tozer, who throws the ball with speed to, I mean, easily to the back post and has set up indirectly or directly six goals already this season, three of them onto the head of his centre-back partner, Will Boyle. So there you go, Tom. I know you like a marginal gain. That one's actually a vast gain. Six goals already created uh, in the first half of the season for Cheltenham Town. So many could could uh, could pick up tips from Thomas Gronemark and from Cheltenham Town as well. Um, uh, Michael, I mean, you didn't mention a piece that you wrote about David Silva. That must have been a, a fun piece to write. I, I see that you're already sort of laying the groundwork for our uh, podcast trip, if and when we're allowed to travel and watch football matches we discussed a few <laughs> weeks ago that uh, San Sebastian is going to be the the destination and David Silva the man to watch I like how you've just suggested this on podcasts rather than behind the scenes and, and therefore it has to happen uh, yeah I mean I think David Silva's been the signing of the season in Europe so far I mean they've got a World Cup winning playmaker um, not quite in, the, in his peak years but still a wonderful player and he's been partly the catalyst to to help them to top of the league or they were top of the league at the time I wrote the article and yeah I was just looking at his role really Real Sociedad and the fact that he's been very creative on the ball as you expect but I think he's also played quite an important part in in Real Sociedad's pressing which at 34 is quite impressive he still seems uh yeah to have that stamina and that intensity to his game and I think a will to win as well which sometimes fades when players have won as much as he has so yeah I will never turn down an opportunity <laughs> to go through some David Silver videos. Well, Sociedad as well, out of the five teams we spoke about on that Overachievers podcast last month, they and Rangers, you'd say, are the two of the five who are still uh, going uh, in, in a similar vein and, and only five goals conceded, I know, in 12 games for Sociedad this season. So well worth a read of your piece about David Silver and about Real Sociedad, all of Tom. Tom's writing as well on the athletic site. And of course, we've got something of a Christmas offer for you listeners of the podcast who aren't already subscribers. If you go to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, you can get yourself an annual subscription to The Athletic. And with that, you get a free one to gift to a friend or potentially a family member that needs to learn more about football for those Christmas conversations. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, all the good written content on site, and you can get every single athletic podcast and the Totally Show as well ad free on site as a subscriber. Uh, let's get into today's topic. Michael, why don't you introduce it for us? Well, we're discussing Arsenal, and I think more specifically, we are discussing Arsenal's. Uh, crossing because Mikel Arteta was talking about that last week and used the phrase pure maths and I think whenever that happens I think we have to get Tom Wolvo involved. I think it's the first time in the Premier League that we put 33 crosses. I'm telling you if we do that more consistently we're going to score more goals. If we put the bodies that we had in certain moments in the game in that box is maths, pure maths and it will happen. Right well we've heard from Mikel and that phrase, pure maths, like red rag to a bull for Tom Warville, for Michael Cox and I. Let's wade into this debate, ZM style, guys. Uh, first question, hard hitting. Does what Arteta said there make sense to you? Or is he really clutching at straws when it comes to Arsenal and their performances? Yeah, I think it's not that he has such an emphasis on crossing, you know, and talking about pure maths like that. That's maybe not what you want to hear as an Arsenal fan. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that Arsenal are behind their xg for this season by about two goals so to a certain extent the mass uh, in that respect suggests they should have scored more goals but yeah just crossing the ball 
again and again and again has not generally been a um, an approach that those who like to use statistics would say lends itself to consistently good performances because i think a lot of crossing is to a certain extent a bit random it's you know not every cross is just putting it in the mixer but there is an element of that and also it's 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 not necessarily an approach i think particularly suits arsenal's players so um i, I think it's a, a a slightly a slightly surprising thing for him to come out to be honest i mean it's not the first thing that springs to mind when you think about arsenal over the years is it so it's almost the fact that it's arsenal that we're talking about that that raises an eyebrow tom we're going to talk about crossing more generally while uh, sort of running alongside this thread about arsenal and i just you know, we've talked about the phrase pure maths there and Michael has hinted at this next question. Would I be fair to say that in the recent years in which uh, data analytics has had a wider influence on the game and, and on how we understand the game and on how teams play, uh, both in attack and defensively, is it fair to say that long shots and crosses, or specifically crosses aimed at head height, have been the sort of great sacrifices of the early analytics era. Yeah, I think that's completely fair to say. I'm really intrigued by this notion of it being pure maths to Arteta, and that to me makes me think that he's seen either some analysis internally at Arsenal that suggests that this is the right approach. But yeah, I, I do think that those are the the initial casualties of this so-called analytics revolution. Um, but we do see obviously some teams that still cross a lot but I think the crosses that that they use form part of a more well-rounded attack and they're not kind of a crutch that the team leans on to to create chances. Yes that's a good point isn't it part of a a varied approach I think ideally because Coxie tell me if I'm wrong but it seems to me that in the modern game it's almost something of a defensive tactic to funnel the opposition out wide with a lot of teams believing that if the opposition's main threat is to swing in crosses well actually that's potentially easier to deal with or a, or a, or a better defensive tactic so it almost plays into a lot of teams hands I mean specifically for example a Jose Mourinho Tottenham side I, I dare say yeah I mean I think the game's changed hasn't it and I think uh, the top sides these days their primary threat would be technical players going through the middle or going in behind Whereas 25 years ago, it was common for English sides to get the ball wide and cross. And the job of a fullback would be to make sure, you know, crosses don't come into a box. Uh, these days, I think that's considered a preferable thing. And yeah, I mean, I think I think crossing has a can play a major part in, in the attacking armoury of a good side. Liverpool, for the past couple of years, most of their assists have come from, or, or the two most prolific assisters, I should say, have been their two fullbacks, uh, Alexander-Arnold and Robertson, who are very good at crossing. But of course, they have other things as well. And I think really the the key is that it should be part of a varied approach. You know, if you do have players who are good at crossing, that will then stretch the opposition to close them down. It should, in theory, create gaps between defenders. And therefore, maybe it's more possible to pass the ball through them, maybe get more space on the edge of the box to have long-range shots, that kind of thing. But I think really what we're, we're looking at is a side who are just crossing the ball with not much else going on. And I think it was maybe a little bit unfortunate that Arsenal, you know, after Arteta said that, Arsenal then came across the Tottenham side who won, scored a, an incredible goal within the first 10 minutes, which meant they could sit back and Arsenal were increasingly invited to cross the ball. And therefore it, it almost, uh, yeah, that game was almost a demonstration that what Arteta said is not necessarily the case. Some serious flashbacks to 
I seem to remember a Manchester United game under David Moyes against, I think, maybe Fulham, but no doubt you guys will know. Uh, and, yeah, and some... it was it was Fulham. I think was it eighty one or something crosses. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, who was that? Fulham had some random centre back from the lower leagues who played a couple of games. Dan, Dan was Burn. it Dan Burn? <laughs> wow, I can't believe I'm describing it now an established Premier League player as a random <laughs> centre back from the lower leagues. I do apologise to Dan Burn. I'm not sure I'd really come across Dan Byrne before that game but of course six foot seven Dan Byrne headed away absolutely everything so yeah that's become the uh, the, the, the game to reference always with crossing as indeed you have done <laughs> there are plenty of Fulham fans trust me whose eyebrows are equally raised whenever they see Dan Byrne playing left wing back or centre back for, for Brighton in the Premier League as he does now his development was um, pretty impressive over a few years I think it's fair to say was not always highly rated by Fulham fans when he was there um, Tom which teams in the division cross as much as Arsenal? I mean, he's been almost proud of the, the, the pure maths, the amount of crosses being swung in in the last few games. Is this a theme across the division? Are they one of the crossiest teams in the Premier League? Yeah, I'd say Arsenal are the, one of the most cross sides in the league. So Aston Villa have attempted the most crosses per game this season, and this is all just in open play because um, numbers from set pieces, you know, free kicks, corners can, can skew these. Um, but Villa have attempted 16.1 per game, which is the most. Arsenal 15.5. Leeds afterwards, interestingly, 15.4. And then at the other end of the table, Southampton attempt the least. They're attempting just shy of seven. Um, Spurs again, 7.4. And United 9.8 so you can see there's a fairly large gap between top and bottom and yeah Arsenal definitely are one of the more cross happy sides in the the league so far this season and I guess my follow-up question which is a little more pointed is which good teams rely on crossing or cross the ball a lot yeah, so we've actually seen quite a big drop-off because last season, Man City and Liverpool were the top two in terms of crosses per game. And I kind of ran these numbers by Sam Lee, our City writer, beforehand. And he was kind of saying that City's approach is very much, um, last season it was more of a, a plan B. If they couldn't break sides down who were kind of shelled in and in a low block, they'd try and use a um, crosses to try and pull them apart, win second balls and try and profit from those situations. So last season, City were attempting 18.6 a game and Liverpool 17.7 um, but those have now dropped off quite a lot um, City are attempting 11.1 and, and Liverpool 13.5 so City's drop off there is is around 7 crosses per game less which again chatting to Sam I think is down to game state maybe not needing crosses as much it's maybe due to them attempting other avenues but in terms of good teams relying on crosses I kind of looked at okay how much of a team's expected goals comes from crossing and I was really surprised that actually it doesn't form a lot of a team's attack. West Ham and Liverpool this season create 0.3 xG per game. Um, that's the most of any team when it comes to, to crossing. For West Ham, that's 20% of all their chances. And for Liverpool, that's around 14%. So although we have this really strong idea that crossing makes up a, a big part of Liverpool's game or, or maybe City's game, in terms of actual chances, they don't derive a lot of them from, from these situations. That, that's a bit of a red flag, isn't it? Michael, because if, as Tom says, even the best crossing teams or the teams that get the most from their crossing create 0.3 expected goals per game from crossing situations, it, doesn't that show that there's just such a ceiling? If uh, if this is the, the, the way Arteta wants to go, it's almost like, well, even if you're really good at this, there's a, a bit of a limit on how good a team you can be going forward. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean... 
Tom, I, correct me on this, but I assume that is when a a shot is directly from across. So sometimes, I mean, you would potentially create goals where there's, you know, a scuff clearance and someone puts in a rebound. Now, I'm not saying you should base your attack around that because that, that even more is about luck. But I think that was one thing that Arsenal didn't really have against Tottenham at the weekend. I mean, Arsenal don't have any goal-scoring midfielders. I don't think any of their midfielders scored more than one goal in the Premier League last year. And I think only Saka's got... Uh, one goal this season. Actually, I think that was a header from across. But in general, they don't have players who are kind of arriving late in the box to turn failed crossing situations into goal-scoring chances, as maybe Aaron Ramsey used to do quite well. So whatever way you look at it, the stats don't look particularly promising, do they? <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Tom, you've looked at the, the teams that cross well, not just cross a lot, but get a lot from their crosses, I suppose. What can you tell me about the, the general themes of those sides that cross well? What do they do or maybe not do? I think the general theme is on these sides, you have good crosses and you have good receivers in the box. You have guys who either have really good movement to get onto the end of the crosses um, or they just have a strong physical presence to try and actually get on the end of the cross. And I guess we'll, we'll get into it, but I do think to some extent that crossing stats currently are... They, they don't really capture that subjectivity that comes of crossing and I think that for that reason as we'll see some of the stats maybe look a bit a bit funky but yeah in terms of what what makes a kind of a good crossing team I think that having a varied um, type of delivery delivering from good areas kind of not delivering from from deep all the time I think that there was a a link to a piece by the late Gary Gillard who was a kind of one of the more prominent football data scientists back when football analytics was was getting off the ground and he'd done a piece um, at the Opta Pro Forum a few years ago which is a kind of club only event which presents kind of new research into into football analytics um and and Dr. Gillard kind of showed different areas where crossing was was useful and not useful and kind of the the success rate in terms of creating chances uh, and around you know driven or, or looped crosses and there was a kind of a big decision tree I guess of if I'm in this area should I cross yes no should I look to move forward to, the, to this zone and I just think that the teams that we see today which profit a lot like Liverpool from crosses kind of meet all that criteria they are crossing with pace they're crossing into players who are in space they're not leaving it in the air for so long that it can be cleared really easily and you don't really see them kind of float crosses in too much either. Yeah I think the interesting thing with Liverpool as well I mean everyone knows that Robertson and Alexander-Arnold crossed the ball a lot. And everyone knows that Roberto Firmino is more of a false nine than a proper number nine. But maybe people don't make the connection enough. I mean, Liverpool don't have a forward who is traditionally a good-in-the-air striker. But because the delivery is good, and I think because they often cross the ball on the run, and as Tom says, you know, it's about the movement of the strikers, that they're crossing situations where the players have space to dart into. And I think almost the pace as much as the height of those forwards does show that you don't need a, an Andy Carroll to be 
you know, scoring from across. It's more about the delivery and, and the movement in the middle. And Coxie there, when, you, when you're talking about kind of crossing on the run, are you thinking more like the ball is very much moving, the player is sprinting onto it to hitting it instead of, say, I feel Hector Bellerin is a player who a lot, when he crosses, the ball is kind of static. He's running up to, to hit it, but it's it's more of a dead ball situation in open play. Yeah, I, I think when it's not necessarily counterattacks, but just when the attack is flowing almost constantly from kind of the halfway line towards the box, I think that that probably suits strikers more. And I think it's then more difficult for defenders to kind of block the run and that kind of thing. Whereas if you kind of get into the final third, then go back, then the defence is set, and then you cross the ball. It just feels to me like the defence is, is generally going to be more organised in that situation. And maybe it becomes a little bit more difficult, you know, for a striker to, to time their runs now with the defenders. But yeah, I mean, generally when you talk to strikers, I think... They like headers that are almost like diving headers. I mean, not literally always diving headers, but where you are sprinting and running and getting on the end of something rather than kind of trying to engineer the uh, the momentum, if that makes sense. Attacking it with gusto. I do think that the one thing that we haven't been able to measure yet, but it will be kind of the the key to unlocking all this is kind of what's the difference in, in the dangerosity, I guess, of crosses against set defences versus those who are running back towards their own goal. I mean, yeah, I think what Coxie says there is so right that a player, and, and you as well, Ali, like attacking it, actually kind of redirecting a header at pace towards goal in my mind and anecdotally is so much more of a better chance than one where you kind of you're Mitrovic and you've got to get above two centre backs and slightly, you know, shave your forehead with it. I think just think that um, a lot of it is just the that transitional moment that when you have players running towards the goal is so much more just dangerous in general. Tom it might be because of the strong quotes from Arteta and the un- and the abnormally high crossing numbers from Arsenal in the last two games. Of course, such a small sample size that we are focusing on this too much that, you know, it's an anomaly of sorts or potentially linked to the fixtures themselves. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I, I, I think Arteta has almost in the way that he spoke about, you know, almost with pride at the number of crosses, makes me think that it wasn't just to do with the, the teams they were playing against. But of course, in Wolves and Spurs, uh, two sides who who were probably pushing them out wide and asking them to deliver the ball in. Yeah, I kind of was thinking before this game, had the fixture list kind of fell a slightly different way and we you didn't see Arsenal playing Spurs right after Wolves. And, and the game state of the game was very much, obviously, that that Wolves injury kind of killed a bit of momentum in the game. And then when Wolves went ahead, Arsenal were just peppering them with with crosses from there. And obviously Spurs went up very early too. I just don't think maybe we'd, we'd have highlighted this as much or seen it as much of an issue as it is. So yeah, I, I definitely think to some extent that is the reason why. And, and Arsenal haven't crossed as many times as they have in the games prior. I think their, their previous high was, I think, 26 crosses against Villa, which again reeks a bit of, of desperation and, and no plan B when behind in a match. But very much, I do think that this is a team that negates the opportunity to play the ball inside and try and attack the box centrally because they don't have that that in-between-the-lines presence that they once did with, um, I guess, Aaron Ramsey. Obviously, Mesut Ozil is, is the most obvious you know, potential solution to that. And I just think they've this is the way they have to play because of the decisions made by the team. Yeah, well, let's talk about the team in more general terms then. We can put that 
pure maths line to bed, I think, based on what you guys have said, I now very much do not agree with Mikel Arteta saying that it is pure maths. In fact, that's it's quite Charles Reap, that, isn't it? Uh, sort of forefather of football analytics from the old days, who, who was very much like, if we do this X amount of times, then this will happen X amount of times. And of course, there's a little more to it than that. So let's zoom in on Arsenal more generally and sort of see what's going wrong. I mean, I say what's going wrong. I, I, I sort of feel like the way that the media cycle works in the Premier League is that one of the big six, and quote unquote big six, kind of has to be in peril or has to be the crisis club at any given time. And sometimes we go a little bit too early with that. At the same time, we are 11 games into the league season and Arsenal are 15th in the table with 13 points. And uh, I mean, reading the various excellent Arsenal writers on The Athletic, um, Art de Roche, of course, and James McNicholas as well, there's so many different parts to it. I mean, just some of the titles from the last two weeks of pieces on site, uh, Arsenal's problems, playing 4-3-3, Arsenal look broken again, Arsenal have a pressing problem and Arsenal are a team of noughts and crosses, which is that excellent piece that uses Gary Gillard's analysis as well from James McNicholas. Uh, four points from seven league games is a very poor record, only two goals scored in that time. So I want to know, Michael, how bad you think it really is uh, and I suppose any signs that it could improve. I think Arsenal have had a really bad month. I think when you look at Arsenal historically, since the start of Wenger's period, they do often have a really weird dip in November. Even in the seasons they were successful, I think 97, 98, they, they had a really bad November. I think before that, I was relatively positive about Arsenal, certainly on the back of the 1-0 win over Old Trafford. I mean, I don't think they've necessarily got less than they deserved from the game so far. Last few weeks, they've been really poor. The reason I would have some kind of positivity is... They've had quite a difficult fixture list. They've played away at Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool and Tottenham already. And you look at their next eight games over the next five or six weeks, and aside from a game against Chelsea, they are teams that Arsenal should be beating. Now, that's not to say that Arsenal will be beating them because they haven't shown much quality in, in recent weeks. But I do think that they're, an improvement is probably around the corner, albeit not an improvement that would take Arsenal towards the positions we expected them to be in at the start of uh, the start of the season. Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of what, what Coxie said there. I think that the fixtures hasn't been too kind so far. And I mean, again, game state is at play, but they did hold Spurs to just a few shots in the game, which I think was, was positive and showed that, I mean, I guess it was the decision by Spurs and Mourinho not to attack, but uh, to some extent they did control the transition quite well. I'm not sure about how long Thomas Partey might be out for, but I just thought, again, he was a really good... Strong controlling presence in the middle of the park against um, against Spurs, and and he just reads the game so well. Um, he has a good eye for a pass as well. There was a few nice kind of chip passes into the box, and yeah, I just think that potentially now they can start to get a bit of a, a run of momentum. Um, again, I'm uh, I'm intrigued to see whether Aubameyang is played centrally or out wide against teams where he'll get a lot more time on the ball, a lot more hopefully chances to. Um, to, to take shots and score. I feel like we should just touch on different aspects of the team. And why don't we start in the final third, actually? You just talked about Obama Yang, and it's been interesting as a neutral to see the different roles being played by Arteta and the various different types of forward that he's used in different roles. Um, can you run me through it, uh, starting with you, Michael? I mean, Going forward, clearly, is is probably the main issue, I would suggest. Do, do the underlying numbers suggest that they're really, really poor going forward, a little unlucky? I mean, 
what's not working, I guess? Uh, they haven't been great going forward. I think they have not created enough chances is the main issue. I don't think Aubameyang's done that much wrong. He certainly hasn't been playing well, but he hasn't been receiving the ball in the right positions. And he's not really the kind of player, Aubameyang, who you want coming deep and trying to get on the ball because I don't think he's that good in those situations, really. His job is waiting on the last line of defence and waiting for the chances and they're not coming. And, and Tom's written very well about how Arsenal basically aren't progressing the ball into dangerous positions. And really, I think they've just got a, a real weakness in terms of the, the personnel. I mean, they don't have a defined playmaker, really, aside from Willian, who's come in and hasn't looked particularly good aside from an early game against Fulham. Let's not go into the Mesut Ozil issue, but I mean, Ozil is an issue because he's... It's not like Arsenal have an overload of players in that position as they generally have done over the last 10 or 15 years. So they are really lacking between the lines. I thought against Tottenham, really, the only player who at any stage showed an ability to receive the ball on the half turn and drive at the opposition was was Saka, who did it once in the first half for a chance Arsenal created. But aside from that, I think they are really, really lacking players who can turn possession into chances. And that, to a certain extent, can be addressed through organisation. But I would say... Tom may disagree. I would say of everything on a football pitch, that's maybe the one thing where you do need a genius or two. And I don't think Arsenal have that in their ranks at the moment. I do think for Arsenal that I somewhat do agree that they need a kind of between the lines presence. And, and since they lost Ramsey and Mkhitaryan on, like Coxie said, Ozil, they've not had that. Um, I think that this this focus on crossing so many you know crosses being used I think we wouldn't be an issue if they had an aerial presence and I kind of tweeted out very tongue-in-cheek that you know there's a man who currently needs game time ahead of the Euros who's very good in the air Arsenal currently have a, a need for an aerial presence and yeah Olivier Giroud is is a player who <laughs> you think would actually be the solution now I think he scored 27 goals for Arsenal in the league from from headed, headed goals and that's more than uh, Lacazette's four and Aubameyang's three I just think combined it just seems logical that they need some sort of aerial threat if they're going to keep playing this way. But, uh, you know, the transfer market in January is notoriously difficult to derive value in. I don't know if you don't expect them to go back to Chelsea again to try and prize him back to the club. So, yeah, I, it is a bit of a um, an issue right now of just if there's no central presence and they're not going to try and break teams down in the middle, then is this crossing focus the, the really the best one? So, Michael, I mean, we we weren't that complimentary about what Arteta said in the first part of this podcast, but based on what you guys have said there, certainly when it comes to their attacking output, it strikes me that this really is kind of a squad building issue. It is, it is a matter of a, a group of attacking players who maybe as individuals, it's clear to see where their strengths lie, but in terms of putting them onto a pitch and, and actually being a side that creates a lot of chances, maybe doesn't work together, which, you know, is fundamentally not Mikel Arteta's fault. Yeah, I don't think this squad is particularly good. I think it's probably better than it was end of last season. They've made a, a decent signing in, in Gabriel at the back, I think has generally looked really impressive. But yeah, I, I don't generally like to you know, I'm not one of these people who thinks, oh, you have to give them two or three transfer windows because I think a, a job of a manager is about improving the players at, at their current disposal. But um, yeah, I think they, they are short in a couple of key areas, particularly attacking midfield. And I think if you, if you added a couple of decent 
attacking midfielders to this side, they would look significantly better. But yeah, Arsenal don't have seemingly don't have a great amount of money. They're not going to be splashing the cash uh, in January or next summer. So they do need their manager to organise the side and, and create better chances through combination play and structure and, and those kind of things as well. In David Ornstein's column on Monday, he wrote about Dominic Schoboslai, the Hungarian wonder kid. And Tom Warville, you actually did a very big and in-depth piece on him recently, uh, trying to sort of cut through the noise and maybe cut through the hype a little bit and understand a bit more about that player. I mean, should Arsenal have the wherewithal financially to go after Schoboslai, um, could he make an impact? Would he fill a gap where there's currently an issue? Yeah, Schoboslai is one of these players who is very hyped and, and everywhere on Twitter there's always videos of his long-range goals, which are very impressive, but obviously don't always tell the, the full story. But I also think he's he's pretty good as well. He's a player capable of playing out on the wing or as a 10 or I think ideally with Arsenal, if he was to come, I think you'd maybe see a move in the long run to a 4-3-3 with him sitting as one of these free eights in the kind of the, the Guardiola mould alongside Thomas Partey. But he's he's technically fantastic, really good from, from dead balls, which I do think that he offers a kind of different kind of delivery. He's he's more of the the knuckleball kind of variety, which is very hit very hard and very flat, um, which is I think is different to, to what they have at the moment. He's happy to run with the ball at his feet. He's not the greatest player one on one, but I do think in transition he offers something a bit different. So yeah, I think that the value of Sabasli right now, of in terms of his the fee that required to kind of get him, is is so low. I just think that it's such a great opportunity in the market for whichever club gets him. He's only 20 years old. Let's not forget, he has a few good years. He's still, you know, an under-24 prospect who you could look to to flip or build your club around. So, yeah, I am really hoping Sobosly either goes to Arsenal or goes to another team. So I just want to see him tried in a in a more pressing league than in Austria. But yeah, I think he, he would be a, a great signing to kind of bring a bit more dynamism to the midfield. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Coxie, it's not just the final third where Arsenal have been underperforming and potentially not just the final third where Arteta is struggling to find combinations that work. Um, Let's talk about the midfield. I I want to know from you what you think uh, works in this Arsenal midfield, what's maybe more pertinently is not working. Uh, I note that, uh, and I'm sure injuries might have played a role here, but uh, you have to get to... Granit Xhaka, who's played the ninth most league minutes for Arsenal this year to find a, a central midfield player, which kind of speaks to a fair amount of chopping and changing, not a lot of consistency. Uh, does that reflect what you've seen uh, on the pitch? I'm amazed that he's only ninth on the list. I seem to have spent an incredible amount of my year watching Granit Xhaka play football. Um, <laughs> I think that summarises my views on him. I mean, I really like Ceballos. I, I don't know why Ceballos isn't regular, particularly in the, the big games. I mean... 
both away at Liverpool and away at Tottenham, I thought Arsenal got much better after he came on. I don't know whether there's an element of, you know, the fact he's only on loan. Maybe Arteta doesn't want to build his midfield around him. But I think he's Arsenal's best midfielder, really. Um, and I like Thomas Partey. I think the, the two of them could be a good combination. I think Xhaka, to me, lacks a kind of understanding of certain tactical elements of the game. And I do find him quite a frustrating player. I mean, I think party is the key. I mean, the fact that party played on Sunday, when I think we can probably safely say he wasn't fully fit after the way he uh, very suddenly left the field of play, that to me shows that Arteta is just putting a lot of faith in him. The party is going to really run the midfield and is going to change the side. Maybe a little bit like Bruno Fernandes did at Manchester United. Obviously, it's a slightly different player. But sometimes you do just have a dominant central midfielder who can come in. I remember Moussa Dembele at Tottenham being a bit like this. And suddenly, they, they just feel like the key player in the side. So I think he's probably placing a lot of emphasis upon him. But yeah, I really like Sabayos. I think he's a brilliant footballer. And uh, yeah, I would like to see him starting pretty much every game for Arsenal. And at the back, Tom, I want to know, how do Arsenal defend? Like, do they defend high? Do they defend deep? Are they proactive without the ball? And, and ultimately, I suppose, is it effective? Because there are many different ways of defending and attacking, but it comes down to hopefully being effective. Um, what are the areas to improve? What are the areas that are working at the back for Arsenal? Yeah, we've seen kind of, a, I think, a variety of, of lines or at least attempts or approaches to, to defending for Arsenal this season. Um, overall, they're 11th for PPDA, and that's below the league average of 14.2. And that essentially is telling us that they uh, do look to win the ball back you know, sometimes, but they're not really aggressive and on the front foot like Leeds, but they're not quite as um, so passive and on the back foot like like Newcastle, who are the kind of first and 20th um, when it comes to PPDA. But looking at some other metrics in terms of how much progress teams make against Arsenal, they're kind of the fourth best per possession um, in the league with Liverpool. So a team can can move 20 metres upfield against them on average, which again shows that they're, they're doing something right. Teams aren't just able to completely cut through them like a you know, knife through hot butter. But overall, I think that, I mean, the underlying figures suggest in terms of expected goals that this isn't a really a great defence. They're the 14th lowest in the league when it comes to XG per game, 1.24. That is by far and away, you know, so much further away than it, than it needs to be and couple that with a an attack which is bottom half as well. And overall, this is a team that's trending towards being a, a mid-table side. I think that is... Those that is the the pure maths. If we're going to speak about kind of pure maths, really. Uh, in you know, we've spoken. Michael spoke a bit about there about Gabriel and how he's been a great signing, and I think that he is a really useful option because he can pass out the back. His left foot is is, is really useful for doing that, and he's just not as erratic as David Luiz or you know or, or Mustafi. And if he is error prone, I, I do think it is due to youthfulness instead of just him being a not overly solid defender. Out wide, I think that Bellerin and Tierney are the right players. I think Tierney's fantastic and would like to see him more as a left back maybe instead of kind of a, the third centre back in a back three. I just think his crossing, and again, I kind of referenced it earlier, his crossing from the eye test just looks so good and he can really really hit a ball from deep uh, and it's he is a very good deliverer of, a, of the ball but um, it's not really turned into anything that useful so far this season he's 25th of all fullbacks in terms of chances per 90 his cross accuracy is 19% as well, which is, is fairly low for all defenders. So I think there are some good pieces there. It's about, again, it's just trying to find a, a cohesive hole and system which which 
brings the, the most strengths to this team and and essentially helps those numbers of XG for and against trend in the right way because right now they are very much like this team is, is one that creates less than it concedes and that is not the um, the makings of a, uh, a good top six top eight team mm. Michael they've played a three at the back system with wing backs around or just over half of their league games this season um, do you prefer it in that system or do you prefer a, a 4-2-3-1 a 4-3-3 etc I think ideally Arsenal would be in a 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, but I'm not sure they have the personnel to make that work at the moment. I think the the players they've got are very suited to the 3-4-3. And the interesting thing about it is that it was such a flexible system. I mean, they played Tierney as the left-sided centre-back, who would become the left-back, and then they would play Saka or Maitland-Niles as the left wing-back, who would become an extra central, uh, central midfielder. So they did have the flexibility from that system. It wasn't like they were being constrained by it. Um, so, yeah, I just think at the moment... That is probably the best approach for them. And I think it, you know, it's a, it's a simple point, but it gives them an extra centre-back, which I think, again, probably suits the defenders. I mean, when David Lewis comes back, he he is more comfortable playing in a back three. I think his uh, his passes actually have been really missed when he's been absent because in Arsenal's games at the start of the season, he was probably the, the best penetrative passer with those big booming diagonal passes. So, yeah, three at the back, I think, is the way to go for Arteta. Well, Arteta's been in charge almost a year at Arsenal and evidently after this podcast there are still probably more questions than answers. It's a really difficult uh, period for the club and for Arteta as well coming under a lot of pressure. We've discussed at the start of the show his line on pure maths, crossing and goal scoring and the guys have given me some great insight into crossing uh, in the modern game but also into Arsenal uh, overall, what's working and sadly, uh, for the most part, what's not quite working. I don't know if this is a, a sort of normal consequence of talking about Arsenal on the internet, but even though it's only been 45 minutes or so, I'm feeling the need to tweet Ornstein saying announce Soboslai uh, pretty swiftly as soon as we finish this, because um, from what you said there, Tom, very hyped, but also very good, I think was the headline. Uh, that's what I'd like to see in this Arsenal side. So um, let's let's see what happens in January. Let's see what Arsenal can do. Let's see if that recruitment team can start uh, building a squad to suit the style of play that their manager wants to play and, and hopefully we won't be talking about um, 44 uh, meaningless crosses in the future. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Tom, for joining me on this week's Zonal Marking Podcast. We'll be back uh, next week, of course, and across December with various episodes of the ZM Pod looking at different parts of the game. And it'd be great if you joined us, if you subscribe to this podcast feed, if you subscribe to The Athletic, you can listen to this podcast and all The Athletic pods ad-free on the Athletic site and app. And just to remind you guys that if you head to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, not only can you get yourself an annual subscription to The Athletic, but if you're feeling festive, if you're feeling generous, give the gift of Cox and Warville to a loved one this Christmas. Uh, if you buy an annual subscription, you will get one free that you can give as a gift. And what says I love you more than an athletic subscription? I've no doubt that many of you have family members or friends that could use some uh, some informed football writing. And that's what The Athletic has in spades. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure you subscribe to this Zonal Marking podcast feed and we'll talk again next week. Mm -hmm.